This episode of Diabolical contains spoilers for The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and will feature a discussion of scenes of graphic sexual violence. This is Diabolical, the comedy podcast where four long-suffering friends dissect films most dastardly schemes, then try to improve them. I'm your host, Gaz, and this week's movie is 2011's American version of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. So, Peril Pals, turn off the Enya, dock your tattoo gun, and for the four in attendance, and the tens of millions listening at home, let's get Diabolical! How do you do? How are you doing today? How do you do? I'm doing fine, thanks. How are you feeling? I'm feeling fine too. Hello and welcome to this week's pod. <laughs> Joining me are the panel of peril who will compete at the show's close to see who can improve the villainous plan of the week the best to earn points for our season two leaderboard. If you could introduce yourselves and tell us your hacker alias, please. Hello, I'm Lord Manly Supreme and my hacker alias is Captain Darknut. Captain Darknut? No. Cap, un, dark nut. It's a capital N in the middle. It's, ha- it's a hacker name. It's hyphenated. Oh, okay. Hyphenated. <laughs> oh, no hyphens. No. Apostrophes. Contraction. Yeah, no? yeah, yeah. Oh, All my right. God. You're a rogue. But you don't You're put, a grammar rogue. You don't put apostrophes in a hacker name. You've, you've got no freaking sense, man. Hackers don't have apostrophes. Oh, Hackers don't apostrophize. I didn't understand the rules of my own game. <laughs> <laughs> Hackers do not apostrophize. We all know that. Uh, well... Maybe you don't. In the world of hackers, you're but the Lex from Jurassic Park. Uh, Craig here, and uh, my hacker name is Lex Hammond Rules 87, and I have written that down, and that is Lex from Jurassic Park. So, fuck you, Turner. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, I'm Adam. My hacker name is Mongoose, but it's spelt M0N. 653, just to throw you off in case you're trying to track me down. Oh. Try using that as your username on anything. It won't let you. It's pretty edgy. Yeah. Yep. I like it. It's edgy as fuck. And my hacker name is Wrestler. That's it. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, is the year three or something? It can be, if you like. It's up to you. I, yeah. Uh, yeah, I like that. You came up with this fucking question. You could have put a bit of effort into the answer. I did. <laughs> <laughs> As I said, this threw me for Luke's like, What the fuck's a hacker name? Morpheus. So here are the iterations I ended up going through. The first one I came up with was Bald Nugget. <laughs> then Stevie Longballs. <laughs> then Cap'n Longball with an apostrophe. <laughs> then then I just got rid of the apostrophe because I realised hackers don't apostrophize. <laughs> I went to Cap and Dark Nut. I carried on going for a minute, and I went to Cap and Loose Nugget, and finally Cap and Loose Stool. <laughs> that was my brainstorming session. So balls and shit were the inspiration for your name. <laughs> That's all I had. That's all I ever have. Can we do our favourite Fincher film as well? I'll tell you what I did do. I did go and watch all of the David Fincher films that I hadn't already seen so that I could give you an accurate answer to the question, 
what is my favourite David Fincher <laughs> yeah. film? And then you fucking decided... We're not asking it. <laughs> not asking it. What, what I am asking, though, is do you know the two hacker aliases that are featured in... Uh, I don't think they're spoken aloud in the film, but they're in the book and the Swedish version. Do you know the two hacker aliases? Maybe. No. Would you give us a clue? Would you give me the first letter of one of them? P. Princess Happy Meals. <laughs> <laughs> it's the big fella, the British comedy actor who gives her the new hard drive. Plague. Yep. Plague. Fuck you. I like that guy. Yeah, he's good, isn't he? Yeah. The other one is Lisbeth's hacker alias, which I don't think they mention in the film. The Sodomy Avenger. <laughs> her alias is Wasp, which ties into the third book in the series, The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. Yeah. It's not waspy. Women against state pension inequality. That hey, one. Craig, 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 Craig. Yeah. Craig. Yeah. I bet that third book. <laughs> I reckon that third book's got a right sting in its tail. Hey. Oh. The sting in its tail is that it's really boring and anticlimactic. <laughs> <laughs> is that the one that Steve Larson didn't write, or is that a different one? No, he he wrote the first three books before he passed away. Uh, they they weren't yeah. even published before he passed away. And then there's a sequel yep. trilogy, which are, um, they're a bit mad. We'll talk about them uh, a bit later. Is he any relation to of the dump? <laughs> Steve Larson of the dump. <laughs> zing. He could be. I'll have to ask his estate. I'm just throwing zingers all over tonight. <laughs> Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, directed by David Fincher, was released in 2011 to positive reviews but meagre box office, taking $102.5 million against a $90 million production budget. Nixing plans to film The Girl Who Played With Fire and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest back to back. But what else happened in that far-off fabled year of 2011, I hear you yodel? I'll tell you now if you hold your horses, just hold your bloody horses! The Egyptian Revolution begins. The planet Neptune completes its first orbit since its discovery in 1846. Oh, well done. Wow. Yeah, not too shabby. An estimated audience of two million watched the royal wedding of Kate Middleton and Prince of Pegging William Windsor. <laughs> Following his victory over Brock Lesnar at WWE Extreme Rules, John Cena announces that Osama bin Laden has been murdered in Pakistan. Which is a real thing that happened. It's mad. Absolutely <laughs> mad after his match, he gets the microphone and announces to the crowd that Osama Bin Laden's been killed. It's crazy. Wait, that's the news? Yeah. No, it, the news it, is that John Cena announced it. First I'll say, you'll never guess who saw Fry and Morgan making out. And they'll say who? And I'll say, it was lovable old Bender. <laughs> Spurred on by a global <laughs> financial crash, Occupy Wall Street protests begin in the United States, and Mojang released the hugely popular video game Minecraft. At the movies, the following were unleashed in multiplexes. Tom Cruise's Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, delightfully deranged animation Rango, criminally underrated MMA drama Warrior, and Joe Cornish's Attack the Block. Nestled nicely amongst that little lot was this week's movie. Based on Stieg Larsson's wildly popular novel of the same name, although its original Swedish title translates as Men Who Hate Women, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo weaves a complex tale of corporate espionage, murder mystery, Swedish fascism, anti-Semitism, 
and the many vile forms of misogyny that run through the underbelly of society. Daniel Craig and Rini Mara had an all-star cast as the iconic crusading journalist ladies' man Mikhail Blomqvist and iconic goth hacker private detective superhero Lisbeth Salander, respectively. They are eventually brought together to try and solve the decades-old mystery of the presumed murder of Harriet Vanger of the infamous Vanger family. An accident on the bridge to the family island means that the only possible suspects are members of the dysfunctional Vanger clan. Harriet's uncle, Henrik Vanger, played by Christopher Plummer, has received a gift each birthday since her death of a framed pressed flower, the same gift that Harriet would give her uncle each year before her death. Why is the killer taunting Henrik Vanger, and who are they? Who was responsible for the Uppsala serial killings of the 1960s, and are the two cases connected? And can Blomqvist clear his good name against the corrupt and litigious industrialist Hans-Erik Venestrom? We'll tell you if you hold your horses. Just hold your bloody horses. But first, what did everybody think of the movie? Really hitting that uh, hold your horses joke hard there, guys, aren't you? Oh, there's more to come. <laughs> You're just telling me to hold the horses. Was this anybody's first time watching? Yes. Yeah, me. Yes. And I didn't even read the synopsis, oh. so I was very confused to begin with. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck is going on here? Okay. Mm. And I was just like, right, well, it's supposed to be a good film, and I trusted your judgment off the pit, Gaz. So I thought, well, I'll just dive straight into it and just see see what happens. And... You know, you, you get the gist of some something that's happening. But then I was just like, what the fuck is going on? And I was so confused and anxious at some point. But I think some of the, the confusion and the anxiety is, is done deliberately by Fincher. Because it is kind of, especially when they're going, oh, what's, you know, I don't speak to him. He doesn't speak to them. I speak to her, though. And it's all that. And you're like, what? But it's it's so slow and there's so so many flat spots. But then when it takes off, it just goes, and I just couldn't drag myself away because uh, I was thinking about stopping and I thought, I'll give it another 10 minutes. Then after five minutes, it got me. Then it took off and I was like, well, I'm not going to bed until I've seen this now. So yeah, it was fab. And what a, an absolute crime that this isn't a trilogy. It's really, really disappointing. I've seen it doing the rounds over the years, but I've never given it any real time. And I just think it's a shame that it's not up there with the more more modern thrillers and stuff and whodunits. I want to go and see it again because there's a lot to take in and I'm sure I'll pick up more stuff second, third and fourth watch. There's a lot of plot crammed in. Well, I hope you, dear listener, have seen it. Otherwise, quite a lot of what Adam just said is going to sound like complete waffle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't speak to him and he doesn't speak to me and all that. And that. That's just us trying to make this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had seen it before. And I remember being quite underwhelmed by it. I went in not expecting much because it was a Hollywood remake of a foreign film. And we've been there before a bunch of times, right? And the, the number of times that happens, well, you can count on one hand, you know, the ring, maybe uh, let the right one in. Mm. But on this second watch, I must say, I was really taken in and blown away by it. It's a brilliant piece of filmmaking. When it doesn't have that burden of expectation around it as well, you're not thinking about the original version or the fact that it's a Hollywood remake, any of that. Just enjoy it on its own merit. It's so good. Well-paced, well-written. So I I, I had a great time with it. Good. It's a tough watch, mind you, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. LMS. If this film came up in Turner's proprietary 
quiz, I'd give it a meh. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, dear. I mean, aside from it being a bit heavy for me, like put that to one side, I just think there are a lot of really odd decisions in there, like from a storytelling perspective, and I don't think they've benefited the story all that much. Okay. Craig, you, you said you enjoyed the pacing, but I felt it was a bit misjudged. Like I thought there were a lot of either really short, jumpy back and forth scenes or s- scenes that were kind of just too drawn out and then they just slowed the pace of the story down. And I, I think that's probably in the first half more than the second half. Before they get Mikhail and Elizabeth together. Yeah, it just felt laboured until until they got together. But there were elements I did enjoy. Like I really loved the way that they used this bleak Swedish winter as almost another character. It kind of reminded me of True Detective, that first season where they used the bayou as almost a character in that as well. I thought that was nicely done. And then the main mystery itself was, was what kind of captured my interest. But I felt the plot kind of wandered from that quite a bit. And I just found myself drifting. So, am I glad I watched it? Yes. Would I watch it again? Probably not. I think maybe that's what happened to me the first time I watched it. Mm. Because you kind of wait in for that mystery to unfold. And then when you've seen it, you kind of realise that that's not entirely the point. And you want to see her journey as a character and, and how it kind of is running in parallel to his, but it's so different. The colour palette of the first half of her story and the, the grimy shithole that she lives in versus the swank, well-lit party that he's at and all that kind of thing. That's what I was there for this time. So I think maybe a, a second viewing would be a different experience, but uh, you know, that's not to say you would enjoy it. It might be different. Yeah. And as for myself, uh, first time round watching it not long after it first came out, similar feeling to to Craig. I was more attached to the original Swedish version directed by Neil Sardanopleff. Nimi Rapace is absolutely fantastic as Salander. Um, The late Michael Nyquist as well as Blomqvist is superb. But recently getting back into the books the Swedish film series this film and the American filmed version of The Girl in the Spider's Web. I love it. I think Daniel Craig is superb. He's the perfect, morally unbreakable Blomqvist. Rooney Mara is fantastic with this force field that Salander puts up around her, which she allows to, to drop at the end of the film when she thinks she's found a soulmate in Blomqvist. And it's quite heartbreaking when she throws that uh, motorcycle jacket into the into the trash. Yeah, I think the plot yeah. is very difficult to grasp the first time. There's yeah. a lot of different plots going on mm-hmm. at once. You've got yeah. Venestrom's plot to discredit Blonkfist. You've got Harriet Vanger being missing, and you've also got a separate, as it turns out, serial killer. So there's three separate plots. You've got a backstory for Solander to try and take in as well, which is almost thrown out in a line of dialogue where she says she set her father on fire Mm. when she was younger, which I think, if I remember correctly, in the original Swedish version, her mother is in several scenes. So you get a lot more of that. And he becomes very important in later films. So it it was setting up the sequels that were never shot in America. But I I think it's an extraordinary film. I, I absolutely love it. And the first thing that marks it out as majorly different to 
the Swedish version, is the opening credit sequence, which I, I wanted to talk about. It's somewhat mm-hmm. of a lost art, uh, a major opening credit sequence, a David Fincher special. Yeah. And we've got a visualization of Salander's Nightmares set to Carano singing a techno rock version of the immigrant song. A Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Yeah. Just that, absolutely incredible. It's unfortunate. You didn't like it? <laughs> no. 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 I like the opening credits themselves, but I just yeah. didn't like that cover. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not much of a covers person. Okay. Especially when I'm so attached to the original. Yeah, I didn't like it. Apart from when you're under the covers. Ooh. <laughs> so what about Joe Cocker's uh, Little Help From My Friends from the Wendy Years? What about that? Yeah. yeah. I, what, once I'm attached what to the original, do I, I don't. I can't usually appreciate a cover, uh, especially a Beatles track. Like just, just there's no point covering the Beatles, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. I like what Fincher does with opening credits, particularly Seven and Fight Club. This one was a little bit like prestige TV, the animation aspect of it and everything, but it was really cool. And uh, the music was, I thought, a, a very cool remix. And the music throughout is great. Obviously, uh, Trent Reznor. Yeah. I watched Mank recently. I didn't realise he did the music for that as well. It's so markedly different from the sort of usual Nine Inch Nails sound. It's like very period. Trent Reznor and Atticus. Ross are a right. scoring partnership. They've done quite a lot. The Watchmen TV series is a fantastic score by them. Mm. Bones and All, quite a recent film. That was a highlight. The mm. score throughout this film was, was excellent. It was just I didn't like that opening song. Mm. Fair. I thought it was kind of like Bondish to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Because mm. yeah. there's lots of shapes and stuff like that and you couldn't tell what was going on, but then it gets a bit more... Is um... that a nipple? <laughs> yeah. Oh, too late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then it just gets a bit more chaotic, and at the end, it's it's like more avant-garde type stuff, isn't it, yeah. really? So, But yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought, okay, you know, this is something seen similar to before, but then it changed, and I thought, okay, so this is going to be a bit different. And the whole film was, it kind of sets the tone, really. It goes from being quite predictable into what the... You know, it just goes crazy and grabs you, doesn't it? So I thought that as well that it was. It reminded me of a, a Bond opening, but what's quite ironic about that is yeah. I never felt at any point that I was associating Daniel Craig with Bond. He kind of disappeared no. into Bondquist. Oh, I don't know. He felt a bit invincible to me. Oh, I didn't feel that at all. No, no he's he... terrified. As soon as he knows that Martin knows that he knows, yeah. he can see he's he's absolutely yeah. terrified. So that part, I thought it was good, but it's yeah, where he's hiking around the the, the islands and stuff. I don't know. He just it just felt a little Bondy, not not overly. He did Daniel mm. Craig did well, I think, but I don't. Maybe maybe it's just you know that's more me associating Daniel Craig with Bond, but it just felt a little bit. I mean, it's his physique. I know he did put on weight for this. You could see that. But yes. Yeah. Did, early, yeah. he's got those those broad shoulders, and uh, I don't know. Do you watch any of the interviews with people at the time and stuff? I saw one with Fincher and Daniel Craig as well. And Fincher one was saying about why he wanted to do the film, saying Salander was a female character he'd never seen before. And then when he said that he wanted to do the movie, that he wanted to do it R-rated, he wanted to set this up as like an adult thriller trilogy. And it never came off because this film didn't do as well as some might have expected. But it still did. <laughs> you know, it doubled its what it cost to make. I mean... It's 
quite a bold marketing strategy they took in the in the trailer that's in the show notes the uh it flashes up one word at a time towards the end of the trailer the feel bad movie of christmas yeah yeah have you seen the muppets parody of it of of the girl with dragons (laughs) (laughs) yeah is it miss piggy yeah it's i think it's called the the pig with the froggy tattoo or something like that (laughs) Is is Kermit Kermit manipulating her? <laughs> <laughs> I think the Muppets, the, the you know the Jason Segel movie came out around about the same time, right. so um, mm. I think they were just taking the Mickey out of it a little bit. I was bordering on is it poor taste for us to be doing a comedy podcast about it, but never mind the fucking Muppets. <laughs> well, if the Muppets have done it, I'm all in. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, they're my bellwether. But also from the interviews I saw, uh, Fincher was saying Rooney Mara starred in the Social Network, Social didn't Network. she, with him? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and apparently she got the job from that. But then he also says she screen tested four times for this role, and there was a whole host of other. Everybody wanted it. Yeah, that's it. And then he apparently that's why she did four screen tests because they kept screen testing all these actresses, and then he went. Well, why am I doing that when I know already know who I want to play the role, and it was her. And yeah, I think it's another terrible shame that she didn't get the best actress that year. She's fantastic. Yeah, she's the absolute star of the, the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I know Daniel Craig's great in it as well, but I just think she just properly devotes herself to the role. So much of it's physical as well, not just like the yeah. the fighting stuff, but like. Like you say, yeah. the, the shell that she puts around her is all kind of done through her body language and her eyes. Like the yeah. scene when she's in the club. Uh, and also, she fucking nails the accent. Well done on that. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, Daniel Craig didn't really bother, did he? Yeah, it's, see, in his first scene, it kind of seems like he's doing it. But then for the rest of it, it's literally just his normal voice, yeah. isn't it? I mean, even the guy from the Queen's Nose did an accent. Why the hell wasn't Daniel Craig doing an accent? <laughs> he got quite a lot of flack for his South African accent in Munich, so I don't know whether maybe he tried it and then he thought, nah. Oh, <laughs> oh did, did it rattle Daniel Craig's confidence? Oh, no. no apparently all, all of... got no confidence people too. Yeah, all the people that did Swedish accents got uh, a lot of shit for it. Rini Mara got a lot of shit for that. Swedish people saying like she sounds more Russian than she does Swedish and Daniel Craig. Just decided to evade that whole hornet's nest. He'd kick it later. Yeah, when I said she nails the accent, I meant I don't know the difference. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like the same. I guess it's the same as um, Crouching Tiger, isn't it? Right. Yeah. To us, you know. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Potato, potato. Yeah. It did make me wonder though. Why did they bother retaining the Scandinavian setting at all? But I think you've maybe nailed it there, Lord Manly Supreme, with the idea that the winter itself is a presence, and that's yeah. uh, something you kind of only get there. Well. On the making of a documentary on the, the Blu-ray, Fincher says that they, as in the studio, tried to convince him to relocate to Canada. But he said for the, the themes of the sort of shady fascism that didn't yeah. really take foothold yet still remains and anti-Semitism and the, yeah. the, the misogyny, uh, he said it, it's so sort of ingrained in Sweden that he felt that it should remain there. Yeah, in 2011, we didn't realise how many Americans were Nazis. It's very obvious now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Canada, yeah. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have bought it in Canada. Oh, yeah, he's no. a Nazi, eh? <laughs> <laughs> what did everybody make of the mystery and how it unfurled during the course of the film? How, how Blomqvist uncovered what was 
really happening. Well, I mean, that's given him a lot of credit there, I would say. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't really uncover it himself, does he? Well, he finds the photographs. He, he notices Harriet uh, looking in the opposite direction to everybody at the children's parade. Yeah. Salander spots the lady taking a photograph next to her. He tracks down the lady who took the photograph. I'd say there's a, a decent amount of detective work going on there from Blomqvist. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he does well. He's not. He doesn't join the dots for a while, though, does he? Until um, his daughter picks up the Bible verses, doesn't she? Yeah. That's because he's given presupposed information, isn't he? So he's working on a, a pre-made assumption yeah. by Detective Morell yeah. that these are phone numbers. Donald Sumter, famous for the Queen's nose. Yes, I like Donald Sumter. He's very good. Yeah, I do. Game of Thrones, isn't he? As the maester. Yeah. Did anybody else see uh, Chief Jim Robinson in it? Yeah. As well? Oh, that was a cheeky uh, yeah, cameo, wasn't yeah. it? Eh? Good day. Can I help you? This is uh, Jim Robinson's police station. Oh, you may know me <laughs> from true. such heart attacks as neighbours. Tins up and everything, doesn't he? He's in the MCU, isn't he? What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you know his best ever role, apart from Jim Robinson? Go on. Like the rich magnate in OC. Genius. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was in 24 as well. Was he the president he after David Palmer? He was in Lost yeah, as well. He was in Lost as another rich guy. He just he just cornered the market playing rich guys. And he's looked the same age for the past 30 years. <laughs> How the hell has he done that? He must be sleeping in Tupperware. Yeah. Just, no, I think it was more that he was young in Neighbours, but he looked old. Ah, uh, maybe. Prematurely grey and old and, you know, kind of looked. He was probably in his, in his uh, 40s and he looked like he was kind of in his 60s. Climbs into his Ziploc every night, seals it. <laughs> like the twins from Gremlins when they were in Erie, Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really good. I liked that it was kind of a, a MacGuffin. You know, the the mystery isn't the mystery. Mm. Or the one he's pursuing isn't, isn't uh, he's not down the right lines. There's kind of two going on. Yeah, I thought it was really clever. Yeah, me too. Particularly, sort of the reveal is that Gottfried Wanger, who died in 1965. Was it four or five? 64, is it? It could be five. You might be right. Hmm. He was the anti-Semitic misogynist serial killer in Uppsala at the time. And Martin Wanger is assumed to have taken over and killed his sister Harriet. But then when Blomqvist uh, says, you killed her to Martin, he's just like, no, what the fuck are you going on about, you idiot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just annoyed that Pumpfist doesn't actually get out. Yeah. I think he, maybe he wanted to know where she was because he would quite like to kill her now, maybe. I would imagine so. I don't know how clear it comes across in the film. The idea is that he has also been sexually abused by Gottfried. Right. Is the idea. He speaks about doing his duty for his father. He was expected of us, is, is what he says. No, he, he does say it in the film. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. In in the book, he's trying to get Blomquist to leave pretty frequently, right? But in the film, he keeps accommodating him, saying, "Oh, please stay," and mm. this is what Henrik would want. Mm. I think that was a more interesting way of doing it because uh, if you didn't know, yeah. if you hadn't read the book, I think you would be quite thrown by the fact that he turns out to be. Oh yeah, it was a good reveal. Mm, I enjoyed yeah. that. Like I say, the mystery unfolding was what yeah. kept me in the film. If they didn't have that, I'd been gone. A long time before. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been really rude in you know, in the context of what we're doing here. Just to show up and go, I just stopped watching it. <laughs> Lost me. Lost me. So I went. <laughs> and I'll have nothing more to do with it. I'm gonna sit in silence for the rest of this podcast. <laughs> 
so um are we going to talk about the difficult scenes yeah so let, let's talk about the rape scenes there are two scenes where Elizabeth Salander is raped by her legal guardian Bjorman in order for him to give her money the first one is an oral sex scene which is horrific enough but then the second scene he rapes her anally do you think that scene goes too far in how it's staged and shot because for me I think it's way over the line which I think is probably Finch's intention it's so sonically disturbing with her screaming constantly and the music and the shots pulling away from the door well what I think is so the shot pulling away from the door, the first one, hmm. before you see anything graphic, is I feel, you, you as the audience feel like, oh, I know what's happening behind that door, but he's letting me get away from it. And the, the, the way the camera's pulling away from the door is almost like we're off the hook. And then he forces us right back into the room. And it's almost a statement of saying, if you know that this is happening, you have to see it. And it's going to horrify you but you you can't not see this because she had to see it that's the way I felt about it and yeah. I think uh, it, it, what it does is it doesn't let the audience off the hook Yeah, that's what I think the intention was yeah that is it's a, that's a really good take on it I think yeah it was it was you know, th- even thinking about it now is it's, you, you don't really want to watch that kind of stuff ever and it, and and because yeah you get lulled into that false sense of security of like they do in every film of they pull away don't like, they say, yeah in a way yeah yeah and then when you're thrown back into it it's like you're sitting there and somebody's almost strapped you to a chair and, and forcing you to watch it and it is horrendous but then obviously when it, it kind of sets up parts of her, of her character that she's been so abused probably throughout her life and things like that and then the revenge and all that afterwards as well. Well, the key to her character is that she's victimised, but she's never a victim. Right. Yeah. For me, it seemed mechanically that was put in there so that later we buy that she would dedicate herself to to solving the mystery of this misogynistic serial killer, right? Presumably. If if that that scene has a device in, in the film, it it has to be that or it's just shocking hmm. because with the first the the oral the oral scene that tells you enough i think i think you already understand all right well this this is how, how it is for her and you you think if it was just that scene you'd still buy later when she decides to take on the mystery so i felt this it was unnecessary i don't think mechanically it was needed it could have shaved time off the film and I don't think it would harm her character development one bit, personally. I don't think you need either of those scenes to buy that she would investigate that. Why wouldn't she? Why wouldn't anybody? You know, you don't need to have been abused like that to think morally the right thing to do is to stop other people being abused. I think she would have done it anyway. I don't think that's the point of it at all. I don't think it's to shock either. I think it's, you know, where, where she murders him. She murders him later. You need that kind of extra step, I think. She, she doesn't murder him. Well, she's going to. She, you know, she goes and she has the gun in her hand and she's ready. She even asks, "Can she murder him? Right? Can she kill him?" Oh, so you're talking about Martin Wagner? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So I don't think that scene 
the rape scene was needed and I don't even think it was treated as a proper traumatic psychological incident even because it's not referred to again I mean but it's illustrative of character like like I said before she has been victimized throughout her life but she's never a victim she always comes back stronger like the story about her father which is much more prominent in the original Swedish version she pours petrol over him and sets him on fire for what he's done to her and her mother Bjorman rapes her, so she rapes him and ties, I am a rapist, sadistic pig, on his chest, makes him fear for his life, turns up randomly to put the fear of God into him. Mm. I think it's very illustrative of character and possibly motivation, but I think she she chooses her own jobs for Armansky's private investigative firm. I think, ultimately, if that job was just offered to her, before being raped by Bjorman, she would still take it, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. So that, that scene was kind of extraneous, really. It was done for shock value. Yeah, like, like I said, it, it, it is for, for me, it's over the line how, how strong the, the second rape scene is staged. Yeah. Do you think possibly that's the reason why the Academy decided not to go with her for Best Actress? Because they probably in their summations and stuff, they probably thought about, had the similar conversations that we're having now. And people saying, this has gone too far, we can't be seen to be giving a best actress to award somebody who's betrayed rape. Well, that's not down to her, is it? No, no idea. I, no, I but, so, but you know what no I mean? Idea. But I, I think that her role in, as, as a whole, for the whole film, deserved... Uh, higher recognition than it has had mm. um yeah she got a nomination i agree but with meryl meryl streep won for playing maggie thatcher and probably in a very that that year? in a very positive light yeah, yeah. She, that's what she won it for she uh so the real maggie thatcher's smiling up from hell <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it yeah <laughs> lying between you two guys and Ben is is this gratuitous in the staging or is it gratuitous in the fact that it exists as a concept as a scene at all because if mm. it's just if it's gratuitous that it exists at all that's different that's a completely different question really isn't it yeah no I, I totally agree with, with what you called and, and the way you brought back in the room and you've sat and you're forced to watch it you, you, you bang on absolutely I just don't think it needed to be in the film for me to get right. the, I, I I think we would have got to the same point with her character, regardless of that scene, is my... Yeah, opinion. I think you're probably right, actually. Maybe, I mean, I, I haven't read the book and guys reading it, but maybe it's so that the the scene where she takes her revenge on him feels like that doesn't go too far. Like, if anything, you kind of like, he's got his just desserts, right? Yeah. It's very satisfying, yeah. isn't it? When he gets his right. just desserts. Yeah, yeah. Well, except for when she kicks it, that's not very satisfying. Stomach turning, but it's no. But it is like it's like okay. Well, revenge. Most people take a certain pleasure from that, but yeah. But if she'd done that to him, that physical violation, you know, what what is the appropriate level of revenge for oral rape? Let's say let's say that the whole thing was different, and it only showed the first oral rape, and then. She ties him up, and all she does for her revenge is just tattoo rapist across his head. Mm. I think we'd have still got the same sense of her character, 
and that's still a pretty horrible revenge. I don't know whether we would have felt how she was affected by it, and it it deeply affected me watching it, mm. and it and it was it churned my stomach. Mm. Um, and then I don't think it would have had the same impact if they hadn't shown it and it hadn't been filmed in the way it had and Rooney Mara hadn't given the performance she'd given um, so much so that the bruises on her body um, in some of the shots afterwards were the actual bruises from when she was struggling yeah. and things like that. So I think I think to leave it out would to leave would be taking away some of the power of that and it kind of especially in the in the environment we live in now is that I, I'm not I don't know how other um, victims of, of sexual violence would feel about it but I think to remove it would be doing them a little disservice to be honest and as hard as it is to watch and maybe unnecessary in some people's minds I think the way it was done and then the way it's handled afterwards and the fallout is is it was really really well done yeah mm. i guess what we're kind of coming to almost a consensus on is that it services her character more than the story and maybe the point of that was in the original trilogy there would have been more to come more payoff Bioman features in right played with fire and Hornets now. Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that makes mm. sense because it just felt like it was almost a throwaway event in the end. Mm. Just because, I mean, you do see that scene in the elevator, but then that, that's kind of it. And, and so, oh, okay. He does try to exact a revenge of a, a less violent nature, and it it doesn't go his way again, and it's very very satisfying once again. Well, let's cross over into a happier subject. Misogynistic serial killings. <laughs> favourite moments from, from the film, favourite scenes, etc. I really like the scene where he's just fucking highlighting everything. And the case files. Yeah. And he just highlights literally every fucking line. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can it, that, that, I think that was a good bit of characterisation. Yeah. You, 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 that was when you didn't feel him as Bond. You felt him a bit bumbling and that, that was great. Yeah, it's very nerdy of him. He's just, just uh, using his little highlighter and everything here is relevant. <laughs> <laughs> I really uh, I really love her fuck you, you fucking fuck t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And to be honest, all of the stuff that I loved is always kind of tinged by something horrendous. So, you know, the... We were talking about the door pulling down the hall. I thought that was, uh, for me, that was a brilliant piece of filmmaking. Another one is uh, the scene with the Enya that you alluded to in the opening. Yeah, amazing. Uh, that's a great choice. That's um, Daniel Craig's uh, pitch to you, Zane. Right, right. He, uh, he had it on his iPod and he said, uh, Finch was like, I think we need some music here. And Daniel Craig apparently just straight away went, how about Orinoco Flow? <laughs> Finch was like, "Are you insane? What are you talking about?" And then they tried it, and he was like, yeah. "It's actually chilling. <laughs> Let's yeah, go with it." Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I, I uh, really like Orinoco Flora, but I want yeah. to think of it the same way now. <laughs> so that that was on my list of highlights as well, just that that use of Enya. But then the other one that I have that we haven't covered already is the bag snatcher sequence. Yeah, that was excellent because yeah. that that said so much about her character. 
Yeah. It's the same thing again, isn't it? She She's victimised, but she's not a victim. So that's what I felt, yeah, that that kind of point was laboured. And I think I think throughout the director kind of labours a few points. Like that, the use of the Happy Meals. I mean, yeah, all right, I already know she's in Arrested Development. Like, you don't need to shove a Happy Meal in my face <laughs> so frequently. <laughs> Adam, any favourite moments? Well, I like the bit when... He goes up to the home and he's greeted by a lovely little tabby cat, and that was my that was my favourite bit. But then obviously I had that um, <laughs> literally smashed to pieces, smashed to pieces later on when the tabby cat is looks like it's been like, pulled one way, yeah. then pulled the other, and it's all mangled. I didn't like that. You must be like a jellyfish blubbering on the floor. Spoke my happy moment then. You know, I like that way he takes a cat in and immediately he goes yeah. straight down the shop and buys cat food. I was like, oh. Yeah. It's illustrative yeah. of his character, isn't it? That he takes care of this cat yeah. that he's just met. Yeah. He takes better care of that cat than he does Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> she takes care of him. <laughs> yeah. I know we're in highlights, but mm. that ending, it's a gut punch, isn't it? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh it's yeah. yeah, it's a total it's a total anti climax, isn't it? It's such a gut punch. <laughs> no, it's just, no, it's just no, a sour I don't note think to end so. the film on. I think it is an anticlimax, really, because yeah. you can see where it's leading, and then it's just like, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I think that there's something about a sad ending that can be quite satisfying. The, oh, yeah. the way she's described yeah. in the book is that her worst fear is people making fun of her feelings. So when she's allowed herself to express, not verbally express, but visibly, you can see how comfortable yeah. she is with Blomqvist. Yeah. And then she's had her heart broken. I, I think it's a fantastic ending. I don't. Understated. Not anticlimactic, more of a rug pull. I yeah. Would say. Yeah, mm. yeah. I must say, I'm not, I kind of like those anticlimactic rug pull endings, shall we say. I, I, I'm perfectly happy with it. It's just that, that was just that's my turn of phrase that I used. But yeah, it is, um, it's a good ending. Yeah, I like it. Because that wasn't included in the original, in the Swedish film, right? No. No, she she's in um, Marbella or Australia at the end of the the Swedish. So to bring that back, it was a strange decision, and I, perhaps it was with it was done with a view for the the, the subsequent films, which kind of you understand, but as a standalone, you just think, oh fucking hell, really? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I understand that point of view. Already, that I don't know how many actors film is like five. The, the fifth act is like super long anyway. Yeah, it's five acts. Yeah. Like I was saying earlier, Hollywood remakes of foreign films already come with a certain amount of baggage. People are expecting them to be poor already. And one of the frequent criticisms of Hollywood is the so-called Hollywood ending. This uh, fable, they all lived happily ever after kind of thing. So maybe there was a conscious decision on the, the filmmaking team's part to have a downbeat ending, to, to not have anything too hopeful mm. at the end there. Yeah. yeah. It just I felt like I'd been through a lot and then it was like right. at least give me give yeah. me something I can cling on to at the end. <laughs> and then Well, you know, <laughs> the rapist got his come up and so did Vanger. He got yeah. Oh he got blown up to shit, didn't he? Yeah. Fucking yeah. And Venestrom gets capped in the head three times. Oh yeah, Venestrom as well, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And plus her whole that whole sequence of her bringing about that ending for Venestrom is Brilliant, just yeah. just great. She's uh, James Bond, isn't she? Right, doing uh, yeah. espionage across the world. Yeah, <laughs> so cool. Because you kind of almost expect the film to end when Banger is killed, but then when you get that mm. after, it's it's. I think that's a a real treat, like a real bonus. Yeah, and I think it rings truer that he's 
still kind of hanging around in this comfortable, weird, open relationship with his business partner because she's married, yeah. right? And her husband knows that yeah. she's yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, she says at the start, doesn't she? I'll, I'll tell him that I'm staying at yours tonight. <laughs> right, yeah. And I think probably if Blomqvist had seen Elizabeth at that point, probably would have, he would have gone to her and he wouldn't have felt bad about doing that in front of... Um, Erica. Erica. Berger. Is she called Berger? Yeah. Yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah, because their relationship isn't what Elizabeth thinks it is when she sees them together. She kind of makes a lot of assumptions about what their relationship is, and it isn't that. She she knows what the relationship is. It's in her report at the start of the film that she gives to Dick yeah. Froder. But maybe she just reads more more romance into it than is actually there. Yeah, entirely possible. And maybe that's also a, a result of the formation of her character, you know, based on her life of, of abuse and not really knowing, you know, what a, a romantic relationship should be like is that when she sees mm. this one man in her life that she's come across who isn't a complete, complete arsehole. He's only like a minor arsehole. <laughs> and she thinks he's he's the bee's knees. <laughs> he's still a bit of a prick, right? Like he's he sleeps around a lot. Yeah, oh yeah, totally. Yeah, but he's always honest with the women about it. Is the, right. is the thing he's he's exactly, not sneaky yeah. or or um, he's not yeah. a bastard, basically. Yeah, he's he's an arsehole, not a fucking arsehole. Is how uh, Clooney <laughs> describes it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's honest, and I think he values his friendships with them more than the physical side of the relationship he's having. Anyway, mm. seems to come across that way. I kind of feel like he just. He kind of just ditches Elizabeth at the end, though, doesn't he? I don't know. He gives her like a, the metaphorical pat on the head, and he disappears for a bit. And she thinks, "Oh, I'll go and surprise him." And then he's back with uh, what's his name, Robin Wright. He's always going back to Erica. Yeah. yeah. Craig, can I just paraphrase what you were saying there about Elizabeth? Were you trying to say yeah. that she wants to know what love is? <laughs> yeah, and she knows that he can <laughs> he can show her. Bloody foreigners! <laughs> <laughs> Come over here, wanted to know what love is. <laughs> Very good. Okay, so I'll just run through my favourite moments quite quickly. They're all quite small moments. The first time that Blomqvist is having a friendly drink at Martin Banger's class apartment, there's a strange sound that comes from off screen and he just looks and he says, oh, the, the wind's coming through and he shuts the door. Yeah. That's the uh, the quote-unquote immigrant whore that he says he's got in the basement. So she's yeah. there right at the start of the film. Uh, that was chilling. Uh, yeah. uh, that was an amazing callback, yeah. Uh, the look on Lisbeth's face when Blomqvist tells her, I want you to help me catch a killer of women. Just the wide-eyed, wild look on her face. I think it's electrifying. It makes yes. the, the hairs on my arms stand on end. And just a, a shot that I really love is when Lisbeth is first riding to Hedestad and her bike crosses from left to right in the film yeah. frame over a bridge and a train passes to the left simultaneously. That's just really dynamic and very cool. So three small moments there. <laughs> Any favourite lines from anybody? I like the little wordplay between uh, Blomquist and Wanger. He says about shooting him and, and doing all these things to him and he goes well it didn't work i'm here and he says it kind of did you're here yeah yeah so he's yeah. like uh-huh <laughs> yeah, i like that's that good one. also what he says to him right after why do people ignore their instincts you knew that i was inviting yeah. you into 
Yeah. That's the line I've got. That's the line I've right, got. Right. That's it's the same good. line I've got. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to believe that the fear of offending can be stronger than the fear of pain. Right. Yeah. Which it is. We've we've all done it. We thought there's something weird going on behind me, but I'm not gonna look because <laughs> I don't want to offend anyone. That's yeah. so yeah. true. Yeah. I've done it. Walking walking the dog late at night. Yeah. <laughs> but then Wagner, the other line I've got is also Wagner, and this is not a favourite line, but it stood out for how cliche it was. We're not that different, you and I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Obviously, they know it's cliche. I don't know if it's put in there because it was yeah. not true. Uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I think it's just part of his um, skill set as being a, like a murderer and kidnapper and stuff like that to try and lull people into a false sense of security or something like that. Or, you know, like they, they're like toying with people, don't they? And maybe he's found that to be like a, a tool that people it puts people a bit at ease or they maybe they, they think they might be in with a chance of getting away and then he pulls it all out from under him and stuff. I don't know. Yeah, perhaps. It just felt weird, especially in the middle of a of like a proper bad guy monologue. To put then like one of the most cliche lines, it's like, what's going on here? Yeah. <laughs> I just gotta say though, it, it's Vanga. You see keep saying Wagner and you're making me think of the guy from the X Factor who had like the long hair and the uh, right, okay. Vanga. <laughs> I'm gonna say Vanga now. Can you go back and cut this in? Vanga. Yeah. That would be a very different film if he was Vanga. involved. Fucking hell. Wagner. <laughs> uh, did you notice by the way uh, Julian Sands is in Yes, he plays the young Yeah, Henry. is he still missing? He's still, yeah, missing, he's still missing, yeah. yeah. At the time of yeah. recording. It was really weird seeing him because uh, obviously he's been on my mind recently because of what's happened to him and when he popped mm. up I was like holy shit that's Julian Sands. Young Christopher Plummer. Good bit of casting he looks like. It. Yeah, he does. Yeah. In The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Martin Vanger tries to cover up for his and his father's history of kidnap and murder of women on the Isle of Hedestad over the preceding five decades since the end of World War II. His solution is to simply play along with Blomqvist's pretext of writing a biography of his uncle Henrik, occasionally suggest that Blomqvist abandoned the mystery before trying to eliminate the Millennium Man once he has uncovered the truth that Harriet killed her own father and escaped to live a life as her own cousin Anita in London in order to escape Martin's incestuous attentions. What did everybody think of the scheme? He's so accommodating of Blomqvist at times. It's almost like he's encouraging him to stay around and find out rather than trying to encourage him to leave. Like every time somebody wants to get rid of him, he's like, no, Henrik would want him to have access to everything. I love that about it, but that part of it does seem a bit risky. And the other thing is, when he does capture Blomfist, he informs him that as soon as Lisbeth leaves the records office, he'll be notified and he'll he'll go and kill her. But that doesn't happen. So that seems like kind of an oversight. The security guard wasn't in the box, right? That's how they play that off. It's a, it's a Lucas right. one-liner. Hmm. <laughs> but apart from that, I think... This is one of the more diabolical plans we've witnessed. His whole lifestyle is very much tailored to getting away with murder. His house and everything. The brilliant thing is, his house is glass. So it's saying, like, I've got nothing to hide, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. And then you've got yeah. this basement. Yeah. It's fucking yeah. genius. That is brilliant. Yeah. I'd echo what Craig said there. Ultimately, he does what all serial killers do, is that he can't stop killing. So he eventually <laughs> gets caught. <because> <laughs> <laughs> 
But they, that's what they say, isn't it? You can't oh. stop killing. Those bloody Pringles. Yeah, punch you pop, you can't stop. And obviously he tries to mix it up a bit and thinks, okay, I'm going to show this guy who's the master of disaster in this part of town. And uh, yeah, he falls foul of it, doesn't he? Car keys are always the last place you look. And as a serial killer, your last victim is always the one just before you get caught. Same principle. <laughs> I should Jack the Ripper, of course. Right. <laughs> so that's all I have to say about that. On to the Floret scheme. <laughs> yeah, I would echo what you all say there, gentlemen. I say it was, it was clever. He built his whole life around getting away with murder. But as Craig said, he did taunt Blomquist, which kind of speaks to his anger later when Blomquist hasn't fa- solved the mystery. Um, mm. It, it kind of it fits the character. So it's, I thought that was well done. Yeah, It's not going to be the highest, but it's going to be up there. I'm giving it... 11 florets of broccoli. Ah, that's higher than I thought it would be. Very good. Mm. Old spinal tap. Is there any way we can do spinal tap? Someone figure it out. Oh, I'd love to do spinal tap. <laughs> He's the bad guy, the, the manager. Maybe it's Nigel's girlfriend. Ah, yeah. yeah. That is good. Yeah, we uh, could do that, couldn't we? It's uh, yeah, David's, David's girlfriend, um, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, co-owner of the trio, plus drummer and keyboarder. Uh, as for my thoughts on on martin vanger's diabolical scheme it's good i i think that the thing of it is that he's paddy considine in dead man's shoes the entire time he's like you're there to blomfist yeah yeah Yeah. i think he's intentionally left that door open with the woman in the basement at the start just to be like she's there and you don't even know dickhead He's just like, as soon as I want to, you're mine. I think it also reiterates what he says to him later on, which is that he was too polite to ask or to investigate what the noise was, right? Yeah. Not so much you don't know she's there. It's more like, I don't give a shit about letting you know she's there because I know you're not going to ask me what's going on. Yeah, so I'm in agreement. I maybe wouldn't go to 11, but yeah, it is well and truly diabolical. The only reason I wouldn't go to 11 is because I still don't know how the broccoli system works. (laughs) Join the club. (laughs) This is the part of the show where the panel of peril compete for the title of this week's most diabolical. And with that comes the reward of two points on our season two leaderboard. Although I as host will only gain one point should I win as I have the home advantage. How can we possibly improve upon Martin Vanger's scheme, is my question. Well, let's do this! Oh, <laughs> make sure you put that down, like the that's, volume. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Hideous. <laughs> okay, first up this week, we will have Lord Manly Supreme, please. Uh, usually, uh, usually the cream. Get this over and done with. Just want to observe at this point that uh, nobody ever picks me to go first. No, really. Oh, you're so hard done by all <laughs> Can we all get out our violins, please? I'm already playing, baby. It's teeny. I think it's fear. That's what it is. Nobody wants to go on after Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> you're the headliner. <laughs> Did you hear that, Jerry? I killed him out there. <laughs> From my home, perched up high on... What's the island called? <laughs> Hedestad. <laughs> From my home, perched high up on Hedestad Island, I see everything. I see Blonkist begin his investigation, and I sense 
he might become a problem. That's problem in Swedish. (laughs) (laughs) I wait until he's out of town and scurry down to the cottage he's staying at. With rubber gloves, cotton buds and tweezers, I scour the house for hair, flakes of skin, saliva and urine. Anything that gives me nice, clean samples of the journalist's DNA. Finally, I pick up a knife from the kitchen and leave. I then procure a blonde wig, some prosthetics, a rubber nasa, or nose in Swedish, (laughs) and a burner telephone. Next, I call Wennerstrom with an anonymous tip-off, explaining that Vanga Enterprises is in bed with Blomquist and that they have some damning evidence against him. I tell him I'm a disgruntled Vanga employee and offer to steal the documents in exchange for a cushy job with his company. He, of course, agrees without hesitation. Without any hesitation at all. We arrange a meeting, a clandestine spot in the countryside. I tell him it's best for both our sakes that he comes alone. Say one o'clock on Fredag. That's Swedish for Friday. (laughs) Next, I call Blomquist. I tell him I'm a disgruntled Vanger employee with information of Harriet's whereabouts. We arrange a meeting, a clandestine spot in the countryside. I tell him it's best for both our sakes that he comes alone. Say, two o'clock on Fredag. (laughs) That's Swedish for Friday. (laughs) When the time comes, I wait hidden among the trees with my rifle by my side. When a strom arrives, if he's brought along people, I pick them off from my hidey hole. If he is indeed alone, I step out in my disguise, hand over some dummy documents, then give him a good old-fashioned skakar. That's shiving in Swedish. I then drop the knife on the ground nearby. Once he breathes his last breath, I take out the little bag of DNA samples and spread them liberally over Wennerstrom's corpse, hair on his jacket, saliva on his cheeks, flakes of skin under his fingernails, and urine on his lips. (laughs) (laughs) If there were others with him, I'd put their bodies in my 4x4, ready to dump out at sea next time I'm out that way. Then I'd get in my car, drive for a few minutes. I'd pull over somewhere out of the way, but still with a view of Blomquist heading to the meeting spot. Once I see him pass by, I make an anonymous tip to the police, telling them about a blonde man who just skakard someone. That's shivved in Swedish. <laughs> then I'd drive home, switch on the TV and watch as Blomkist is arrested and later convicted for murder. Naturally, he would plead his innocence, but only he had the motive, means and opportunity. Satisfied with a job well done, I head down to singles night at the local synagogue. <laughs> <laughs> What's the public explanation given by Venestrom's estate for why he was in Hedestad? That seems a bit weird, that he would be going to where Blomquist is currently residing. Who's not? Where did they meet them? Just in the countryside outside Stockholm. Okay, fine. Yeah. I missed that. I just said in the countryside, yeah, I didn't specify the island. Why does he put piss on his lips? <laughs> well. Why not? <laughs> where, where would you put the piss? <laughs> Here's my question. This is a question for Duolingo over there. <laughs> I think forensic science is better than this. And when somebody scackers somebody there's a blood splatter pattern that goes over the hand that they can't easily wash off that can be detected with luminol so i think that as soon as they investigated the crime scene they would know 
that he didn't, in fact, scacker anyone. Rubber gloves, mate. Rubber gloves. But his DNA won't be inside the glove. You didn't put any in there. Yeah, that's all right. (laughs) (laughs) Are you sure? Mate. (laughs) Swedish police. These are Swedish police. They don't know about forensics. (laughs) They'll find the DNA, but that'll be be where they stop. They go, the knife's from the kitchen. It's got its fingerprints on. Let's go and have some Rivita. (laughs) Time for a nice sauna. (laughs) (laughs) Sauna is Swedish for sauna, by the way. (laughs) In Poika is a boy and Flugtag is an aeroplane. That's what I got from Duolingo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and um, Ikea means Ikea. Yeah. Ikea. Yeah. We have bastardised that in the UK. Any more questions for Lord Manly Supreme? No, I think we've destroyed his plan already. I've, I've got one. <laughs> <laughs> How do you keep making such great foolproof plans, Benny? How do you do it? You've got to call yourself Lord Manly Supreme. <laughs> okay, next let's have Adam's plan, please. Okie dokie. What does Martin Wanger do wrong? He leaves his back door open. Also, grossly underestimating Blomquist's skills or overestimating his... Most criminal experts will tell you that serial killers won't stop until they are caught. Something I highlighted earlier. (laughs) Wanger has been exceptionally successful murdering the fairer sex. He breaks his winning streak by selecting his first male victim. Blomkist is a jinx. Wanger is a coward. So why doesn't Wanger stick to what he's good at? Kidnapping women. As Blomkist continually pokes his hornet's nest, Wanger doesn't try to lure in Blomkist himself, but focuses on Blomkist's weaknesses, namely his family. Wanger discovers that Blomkist has a daughter, and she has recently turned to religion, so decides to pay her a visit and plot a means to kidnap her. As a man with any means at his disposal, he devises a plan and kidnaps her after she is walking home alone one night. He then takes her back to his house and the cellar of horror. He can then send Blomkist a video, a Polaroid, a letter, it doesn't matter. Wanger has his daughter, and Blomkist still isn't sure about the identity of the killer. His daughter can no longer decipher the Bible references, and he's yet to recruit the determined Elizabeth to assist him. So, he is in a panic. The killer demands that Blomkist cease his investigations and turn over all material relating to it over to him at a place of his choice or he will bring his daughter to the slaughter <laughs> do you like that reference that was a cheeky <laughs> little bit of a bit of a rhyme in the middle of i know yeah plan. i was like i like that yeah i know i thought well i'll, I'll chuck that in there just to keep it a bit light-hearted <laughs> it's a number one hit wasn't it for i made bring your daughter bring your daughter to the slaughter what are the next lines? Let her go. Let her go. Let her go. Are you sure that's the song you want to do? Let her go? <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway, I'll carry on. Blomqvist is clearly torn. His reputation is crumbling and the investigation is his only means of salvation. His hatred for this killer of women is also palpable. However, can he let his own daughter become another, if final victim of this sadistic ghoul? so he can solve the decades-long mystery and restore his career. His paternal instincts are undeniable. Blomquist chooses to save his daughter, 
but plans to deceive the killer or ensnare him somehow so that he can have his cake and eat it. The killer tells Blomkrist he will leave his daughter on an isolated road, bound and gagged as long as he leaves his documents in a bin by the bridge we see in the film, and his daughter will be free. Blomkrist agrees and deposits the materials in the nominated bin and tips off the police to watch for anyone removing anything from it, as that will be the killer and kidnapper. As Blomkrist strives to find his daughter at the agreed-upon spot, he receives a phone call from the police telling him they've arrested a guy rummaging through the bin and trying to flee, with a picture of Blomkrist's daughter holding today's newspaper. As he gets closer to the spot, he sees a hooded woman, physically resembling his daughter, tied to a tree about 10 metres from the road. He pulls over and rushes to her to remove the hood. It is not his daughter. Some immigrant whore, perhaps? And she is dead. Suddenly realising he's been played like a banjo and the other guy must be a patsy, the front of his face explodes as a carefully aimed shot splits his head apart. There's no grazing wounds. Not here. It's all business. Vanger lifts his head from behind a sniper scope in the distance and smirks in satisfaction. As Blanca's phone rings out and police begins to flow into the area, Vanger retreats in stealth. Back to his house. Back to his cellar. Back where Penilla Blomquist is bound and gagged. He can now take his time to savour this one. His foe vanquished and his uber-religious daughter in his clutches. Let the good times roll. You said his mistake was picking a, a male target. And what I think you've done there is... By killing Blomquist, you've picked a too high-profile target. And the police will investigate the shit out of that. And there's no way that they won't figure out it was somebody on the island. Somebody with access to a rifle. They're going to find out who it is. Mm. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? <laughs> Did you just have a rug in your hand sweeping something under there? <laughs> You've never liked having questions asked of your plan. No. I, I recall from the very first episode. No, no questions I mean, from you no, now. I've, no, um, I've, I think... Uh, that before the investigation has got too far underway, that this murder could be pinned on anybody, really, and his disappearance. All right, who'd you pin it on? With the Vernstrom or whatever his name is, he's got a big score to settle with him. You know, he could have said maybe it's him. How? It could be somebody that works for him or anything. There's loads of stuff. How would you pin it on Vernstrom or one of his, like, high... I, I haven't got all day, you know. Oh, I see. I've, I've, I've got a life outside <laughs> of this podcast. Fucking <laughs> hell. How dare you? How dare you? I've got to write another plan for this now. I've got to write a plan about my plan. I'm just... That's my plan. To be fair, Craig, there would be media interviews once they realised Blonkis was working for the Vanga family. They would interview Martin. And probably the, the press would as well. And he would go, well, if I had my true sense, I would say uh, probably Wenestrom or one of his cronies did it. And then that would. Oh, yeah, and the, and the police would just go, oh, okay. <laughs> that would solve that. And he'd just dust off his hands and that would be that. Yeah, George Lucas' way out. <laughs> I'll Lucas my way out. I will say, just for mine, Turner, I didn't go on and understand what was going on for most of it. So, <laughs> so you had that going for you. You did or didn't? No. You mentioned. Vanga has a lot of resources, yeah. which I, I agree with. Yes. How would he find the daughter? Uh, well, you just do a bit of research on Blomquist, know that he has a daughter, and yeah. then make the connection that way. But how would he actually physically find her? He'd just get a private eye to find her. 
It's probably quite simple. Okay, do you think that private eye might might end up singing like a canary? Maybe, maybe not. He could probably deal with him later on. Okay, so he's going to murder his way out. Murder Pringles. <laughs> Every person that finds out, he just kills along the line. <laughs> That's <laughs> it, yeah. Like dominoes. He's got rid of Blomquist. <laughs> to eliminate or neutralise Blomquist was the task for this, and I have done so. Emphatically so. Yeah, well done. <laughs> and then anybody else after this, doesn't matter. <laughs> All right. That was the remit. Yeah, yeah, it was. Okay, let's have Craig's plan, please. Right, I'm just going to preface this by telling you you're going to hear some very common themes here, but you might think that I've thought some of them through. <laughs> Rifles, snipers, woods. <laughs> Swedish. Saunas. <laughs> Martin Vanger hates women. No time for him. I think girls are icky pants, he says. <laughs> Gross. No thanks. Mikhail Blomqvist is a boy, which is probably why Martin tries really hard to scare him off, but is also very nice too and accommodating of him. But of the many girls in Mikhail's life, there's one in particular who not only helps him crack the case, but who also makes the deceptively perilous journey to visit Mikhail on the island, his daughter, Pernilla. Nobody sets foot on the island without my knowledge, so I make sure I'm ready to greet this mysterious young lady before Mikhail would have returned to find her waiting on his doorstep. She introduces herself, and I notice her crucifix as I bid her a warm welcome. I tell her I'm positive Mikhail wouldn't want his daughter waiting out in the cold, and insist she joins me up at the big house, so she can look at the vintage Bibles in my uncle's library, and have something to eat and drink. It's less than 24 hours before Blomqvist receives the call from his ex-wife. Their daughter was supposed to call from Bible camp as soon as she arrived, but so far there's been no word. He makes his apologies to us, but naturally, Mikhail now has more pressing concerns than my uncle's 40-year-old cold case. In his panic and shock, he may not be thinking clearly, so I remind him that, since he told us she travelled by rail, he may want to start by checking CCTV footage from all the platforms along her route. Maybe she came to visit him here. I know the local station master very well. He's a close friend of mine. I'll call ahead and tell him to expect a visit so he can get the tapes ready. Unfortunately, there's no trace of Penilla on the tapes. There's no trace of her anywhere. Until her mother receives a cucumber sandwich in the post. Penilla's favourite. <laughs> <laughs> Wrapped in a Bible page. <laughs> Blomquist was already mistrustful of those religious fanatics. Maybe he thinks she's been indoctrinated into a cult, or he thinks whatever he wants to think. He'll never find any evidence now. But he can't stop looking when there's still a chance. On the way home, in my Range Rover, I listen to the biggest hit of the year. It's a Calvin Harris one. I get all the girls, I get all the girls. <laughs> bravo, bravo. I was, I was worried when Turner started because it was very similar. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, but both of you have misogynist side, didn't it? Pick on, on the daughter. Um, Greg, would you mind reading your opening sentence again for me? <laughs> Martin Vanger hates women. No time for him. And then go to the icky pants. Ooh, icky pants girls. <laughs> I think girls are icky pants, he says. <laughs>
What's the next line? There was a rhyme in there that was just beautiful. Ugh, gross. No thanks. Right, so read, <laughs> read those three lines together. I think girls are icky pants. Ugh, gross. No thanks. So when you started that, I started laughing to myself because I thought you'd written it in like a Dr. Seuss style. <laughs> I wish I had. No. I was crying inside. I do not like green eggs and ham. <laughs> Said the man. Who didn't like women. Oh, that was brilliant. It was good. Very good. Yeah. The only two notes I've got is uh, great plot start, Icky Pants Girls, and um, <laughs> kudos on the very good Stellan Skarsgård impression. I really... Thank you. Thank you. Oh, that was offensive. Very nice. <laughs> it was For good. Me, it started off really, really good, and then it, it went a bit French and uh, Pepe Le Pew. It sounded... Yeah, it sounded... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pepe Le Pew. That's what happened to Stellan Skarsgård's accent throughout his career. So that's what I was aiming for. You nailed it. So he sends Blomqvist the cucumber sandwich. <laughs> wrapped in a Bible, the Bible page. page. wrapped around it. Yeah. Is that for freshness? I mean, that's not integral to my plan. I just wanted to make it a bit lighter than I'm just, just <laughs> killing his daughter. Okay. How, how, how can I lighten this? Ah, cucumber sandwich. From the plot, we have Vanga, the elder, receiving the pressed flower every year. And mm. he thinks someone's taunting him. But her intention is that he will maybe know that she's still alive, but that Martin yeah. will never be sure that she is. So what I figured is that he would send Blomqvist some kind of icon that to him could mean that he has to keep looking for her because she's out there. He knows it's personal to her. And I just thought rather than just a Bible page, it'd be funny if it was a cucumber sandwich as we see her eat and filming her very, <laughs> very brief scene that she's in. <laughs> Uh, but the idea is you send some kind of icon that's important to her, and I guess of the things Vanger knows about her, it would really be the, the Bible page, probably. But yeah, cucumber sandwich for flavour, as they say. <laughs> so Vanger goes to the station and, and gets the tapes, is that...? No, he no, he genuinely does know the guy there. I reckon it's such a small island, and the way he wouldn't. So he, when he wants to do something, because he's killed multiple girls in his house, and they they've come to the island, and every station in sweden has cctv but none of the carriages do i looked into that earlier when i was doing it christ so you can see people on the stations but not on the trains so i figured if she goes missing that's the first thing i'd think to do is check the train station footage so um i think that not only would martin realize that blomquist would do that he'd realize that he because he does he has a pattern of doing this he'd have to look like he was being helpful and like suggest to him that he looks for that mm. but also secretly he's told his mate uh, just w- wipe last night's uh, footage for me, will you? Uh, I was I was drunk and I, uh, I, I pissed on my pants and I don't want anyone to see it. <laughs> and then the guy's gone, okay, I'll do that for my buddy Martin. He's wiped all the tapes, not thinking anything of the fact this girl was there because nothing happened to her, right? She was just there. <laughs> but when someone comes around and goes, we need to see last night's tapes, he's not going to go, oh, um, I deleted them because this guy asked me to. And they'll be like, are you allowed to do that? You fucking... You fired, mate. He'd just go, oh, there's n- nothing on them. I'd just show him, like, a tape of some other night. Ooh, there's, a, there's a slight weak spot in your plan there, I would say. What is it? That. <laughs> Why? That guy's not going to put two and two together and say, let's this guy. You know, Martin just called me. Vanga just called me. No, because he's seen the tapes. He was there. Nothing happened to this girl. So he's not going to go, oh, well... Martin specifically wanted me to raise last night's tapes because of that girl who just happened to get off a train. I didn't think anything of her. Maybe he didn't even notice her because nothing happened to her, right? He might think she probably wasn't here. I don't remember seeing her. Listen, listen. 
I'm not saying it take away from your plan a great deal, but for <laughs> me that's a that's a small just a small little yeah. uh, little nick in the armor there. I think it's explainable. You could pay him off, couldn't he? Well, that too, but yeah. He's a rich yeah. guy, Martin Vanger. Yeah, I said he's a man of many means. Cash rich, morals poor. Yeah. Well, it's nice, nice to see Gaz is following a uh, traditional etiquette and going last. Yeah. <laughs> Not like these young upstarts going first when they're hosting. Hang on, weren't you the first person to do that? No, I've never done it. I, I was the first person to do that. The old uh, trailblazer. Well, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm really sorry, but it's been a horrible week for me. So I actually, in terms of time managing, I I haven't had time to. Uh, to, to come up with a plan. Um, I, I haven't got anything. I, I haven't got anything, says Martin Banger to the board of Banger Industries. <laughs> Mostly made up of other members of the famous Banger dynasty. As you all know, he continues, I'm not doing the accent. Our beloved chairman <laughs> emeritus and my uncle, Henrik Banger, suffered a heart attack just yesterday. We're having to lay off staff in key locations across the country and there's the small matter of Martin stops before he can incriminate himself. He nods silently before forcing a tiny, begrudging smile. The poor, poor man. I do not have a plan to turn around the company's fortunes. Yet. Making his excuses, Vanger leaves the end of week meeting early. His mood takes an even worse turn on the long dark drive home to Edestad Island. What he stopped himself from saying during that meeting was that his principal concern was the disgraced reporter Mikkel Blomqvist and his prying into private family affairs. Despite the pretext of ghostwriting a memoir, everyone knows that Henrik has enlisted him to have one last crack at the unsolved case of the disappearance of his sister, Harriet Banger. And that won't do. That won't do at all. He doesn't know what happened to Harriet, of course, but he does know that it was she who killed their father before disappearing the day of the famous accident on the bridge onto the island. Wanger knows that sooner or later, Blomqvist will comb through this evidence forensically and uncover something that would be very bad for him. He feels it in his marrow. He and his late father are collectively two of Sweden's most prolific serial killers of women, but he has no appetite for the killing of men. That would do nothing except dredge up the pain of his childhood and his abusive father. Instead, Martin makes a plan of a different kind. Before Micah's mysterious research assistant arrives to sift through decades of evidence yet to be discovered, Gottfried Wanger's only son reverts to type. He targets a woman. He targets Erika Berger, the editor of Millennium Magazine and lifelong friend slash occasional lover of Mikkel Blomqvist. Stockholm is a long journey by train, but a short hop on a private jet for a man with means such as Wanger. He will wait until he sees the light go out in Blomqvist's cottage on the family estate and make a dash for Berger. Aware of the casual nature of her marriage, Wanger imagines that she will either be at the office or home alone. He can easily charm those details from the Millennium Man in casual conversation and make a beeline for one, then, if needs be, the other. Having given firm instructions that the jet's pilot remain in the cockpit at all times, Martin will return to the jet with a drugged burger and take her home to his underground dungeon to remove her from the picture permanently. With the magazine being in such a precarious position financially, losing another editor after Blomqvist's self-imposed exile would be more than the business could handle. Without an urgent steadying hand, Millennium would surely go under. 
It wouldn't take much persuasion on Martin's part to persuade Michael to return to Stockholm and take up the mantle of editor once more. Should Henrik recover from his heart attack, he would be weak as a kitten and quite unable to swim against the tide that is his nephew's insistence that Blomqvist return home to captain the good ship Millennium. Perhaps he would also give the newsman the old man's intel on arch-nemesis Venestrom for good measure to sweeten the deal. Yes, that is what I will do, Martin Wenger says aloud. He's been thinking for some time now, and his car has come to a standstill several hundred yards from Blomqvist's residence on the family estate. He stares intently through the winter darkness, waiting for the cottage light to go out. Very nice. Mm. Could you just say memoir again, please? Memoir. <laughs> I love it. That's how uh, Plummer says it, isn't it? So one, one of the twists is that Plummer, speaking of him, doesn't actually have any decent intel, right? So that's not going to yeah. sweeten any deal. Oh, no, but uh, Martin Wagner possibly believes that it will. Okay, good. He could say, look, go back to Stockholm, take over the editorship of Millennium, and then once you're there, I'll give you the info on Venestrom. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, forgive me, I'm, I'm not a jet setter. So I don't really know how private jets work, but I presume there are still some security barriers you have to go through to get onto a plane at an airport. Oh, doubtful. (laughs) He's he's probably got um, two private airstrips, one in Hedestad and one in Stockholm, I would imagine. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Conveniently located, equidistant between Millennium Magazine and Erika Berger's (laughs) 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 That all checks out. That's the beauty of its position. It's equidistant. <laughs> I don't think I have any more questions on that one. No. no. <laughs> okay. Well, some absolutely diabolical schemes there. We had Lord Manly Supreme's plan to frame Blomqvist for the murder of Venestrum. Adam's plan, which was to use Blomqvist's daughter as bait and then shoot Blomqvist in the face with a gun. Craig's plan, which was to murder Blomqvist's daughter, and my plan, which was to murder his lover. <laughs> it brought out the best of us, this one, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We're all having a great time. And so the time has come for us all to cast our votes. So, shall we go alphabetical and reveal your votes, please? Your first Adam. Well, I think the plot was pretty good, and I like the opening gambit and the impression, so I'm going with Craig. I love the imagery of a cucumber sandwich wrapped in a Bible sheet. I've gone for <laughs> Craigie Morhees. Well, I had to go with the plan that in the end I thought was the most watertight with no holes that I saw, and that was Garris. Yeah. You, you thought going through an airport with a drugged woman... Had no holes. No, because his answer to your question, I oh private <laughs> private strip. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Private airstrip. Yeah, <laughs> you can't have a private airstrip, right? That's not bullshit. That is a thing. Yeah, right? in life. Yeah, right? I think so. If you, if you can have a private yeah. helicopter pad, then I'm sure you can. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And my vote goes to Craig. Hey, oh, oh it's a clean sweep. So Craig takes the win with three votes. Really Wonderful. takes the biscuit. You know what? It was doing my Sweden all week trying to think of a plan for this, and then I came up with ironically. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so that puts the scores for the season before we go into the final round of four at. Oh Jesus. 
nine and a half points in the lead is Craig. In second place with eight and a half points is myself. In third place with five and a half points is Lord Manly Supreme. And in fourth and final place with four and a half points is Adam. And isn't that funny? Because my favourite film, as you all know, is Nine and a Half Weeks. Gaz's favourite film (laughs) is Fellini's Eight and a Half. Uh, Ben's favourite film is uh, Police Academy Five and a Half. Yeah. And mine is Naked Gun 33 and a third. <laughs> so if I win all the remaining episodes, I can still win, right? Yeah. yeah. I'll make sure you don't get Apricot 1. It's still wide open. There's uh, seven points up for grabs. And top to bottom, we are separated by five points with seven right. on offer. So anybody's game still. Yeah. Well, we're about to enter the final round of this second season. And Adam will be hosting the podcast next week with his choice of film. If you could all just hold your bloody horses, he'll name it right now. <laughs> That's right, Gaz. I am hosting next week. <laughs> what a coincidence. <laughs> Anywho, the film we shall be watching next week is celebrating its 60th year this year. We shall be watching the Harryhausen classic, Jason and the Argonauts. Oh. Oh. Very interesting. Wow. Who's the bad guy, Jason, or the Argonauts? <laughs> or Harryhausen. Well, that brings us to the end of this uh, week's Gaz, episode. Sorry, sorry before you, before you <laughs> go, go to that, Gaz. Yeah. Um, with your uh, hold your horses jokes this week, you were really flogging a dead horse. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think, I think with that joke, Lord Manley, you've uh, bolted the stable door. After oh. the horse has gone. <laughs> Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! <laughs> yes, and I'll be putting the super back in superintendent. <laughs> Same <Yes>. damn joke! Goddamn <laughs> popularity contest. <laughs> Look what you've done now, you little freaks! <laughs> Jesus. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. If you like what you hear each week, please subscribe, leave us a five-star review, and follow us on your podcast provider of choice. Subscribe on YouTube and tell your friends in person and on social media. Word of mouth is the best tool that we have, so please do tell your friends about diabolical evil schemes done better. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at DiabolicalPod. Next week, we'll be back to discuss Jason and the Argonauts, and we hope you'll be here with us. Until then, remember, everything will be alright in the end, and if it isn't alright, then it isn't the end. If you have been affected by any of the issues discussed in this week's episode, you can speak free of charge to Samaritans on 116-823 or Rape Crisis on 0808-500-2222. She's the girl, the girl with the tattoo of a dragon on her spine. (laughs) Anyway, my favourite David Fincher movie is Seven. Me too. Snap. Fight Club. Mine is Fight Club. Yeah.
Yeah, Lord Mercy um, Supreme. Oh, Adam was going to speak there. Look at a little disappointment on his Adam. furrowed brow. <laughs> I think what's really going on here is uh, Lord Manly Supreme knows what I know. So he's never going to say anything smarter than what he just said. Oh, that's really, really <laughs> well observed. Can I retire from podcasting, please? Yeah, you've, you've worked. My work here is done. 